Father in heaven, as we come to your word, we believe that's exactly what it is. This is not just a book. It's not just an old book. It's your book. It's one that you wrote to us. And so I pray, God, that you would open up our eyes to help us to see Jesus and all of his glory in this, in this amazing story. That you would open up our eyes to help us to receive grace upon grace when we believe upon Jesus and trust him and seek to worship him. And God, I pray that you would use this, Father, to stir gratitude even in our heart today as we leave this place. So would you speak through weakness in myself, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So John chapter 4, if you want to turn there with me. Um, on Tuesday of this week, uh, I was sent a video. It was um, sort of funny. It had circulated um, about a security guard at the Masters Golf Tournament that failed to recognize six-time champion Jack Nicklaus when he drove to the Masters this week, uh, which, is, which, is, uh, uh, which is, well, which is funny to me. It's a uh, um, and, and in this video, so there's Jack and he's driving um, and, and then it's his wife. And then I believe there's someone in the back and they're videoing them going through the guard gates. I'm not sure why, but they were they, they, they were doing this. So the guard comes up and the guard doesn't recognize Jack Nicholas, And so he does exactly what is his responsibility. And so he asked for the ID for everyone in the car. And Jack Nicholas looks at him and and in a subtle humility, but also a surprise that it's been a long time at the Masters since anyone's asked to see his ID. He says, do you even need to see mine? <laughs> and I'm watching this and I'm thinking, well, this is very, uh, very similar to what we find here in the book of John. You see, the whole book of John was written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and in believing that we may have life in his name. But the whole book of John, what we find are people not recognizing or receiving Jesus as who he is. The whole book starts back in John chapter one, verse 11. It says that Jesus came to his own and his own people didn't even receive him. He says that he came and he bust through all of these walls of our shame and the darkness and our confusions in order to show himself to us so that we might receive grace upon grace. And here in John chapter four, Jesus engages with a woman at a well. And it's interesting that initially she does not recognize or receive Jesus to be a man of any significance whatsoever. But Jesus did this, had this conversation, went out of his way to do so in order to open up her eyes, in order to give her grace, but also to liberate her worship. And we're going to see that in this text. Now, there's 42 verses. So I think it's important, as I've done in the first two, for us to break that up into some few manageable chunks uh, at a time. And so let's read the first 15 verses here right now. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink for me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. 
Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, well, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So the first thing that I want you to see it's a, is this, is that Jesus shines his light on culture's darkest shadows to lead us to worship him. Jesus is the light of the world. He literally comes and he shines his light upon the darkest, most nasty and sinful shadows of this fallen culture. And he does this so that people will worship him. It says that when the Pharisees heard that Jesus' crowd and his popularity was growing even past the size of John the Baptist, that Jesus decides to leave Judea in the south and go north to um, the, the, the uh, Great Lake up there, right? Well, they get to Galilee. What we're told from geography is you have to go through Samaria. But most Jews went around. And the reason they went around is because they hated each other. You see, back in 722 BC, 700 years before this was happening, more than 700 years, what we're told is that a great army of Assyria came in and conquered the land of Israel. And the first thing they did was they took the people of standing in Israel and they exiled them away. And so the people of influence and the leaders, they, they literally sent them away, sent them away from, from their homes and their families and they had to, they had to just fend for themselves. But there were some Jews of lower standing that were allowed to stay. And when the Assyrians came into Israel to live there with them, they began to intermarry. Well, eventually the exile ended. People came back into Israel, these pure Jews. And all of a sudden they looked at people who at one time were pure Jews. But now all of a sudden they looked at them and viewed them as racially defiled. And they hated one another and their hatred intensified over the centuries. To where they get to this place and literally people would, even though it would take roughly 40, I think 46 miles to go around Samaria and they're not flying or driving a car, they're walking. They would literally go from Judea and go all the way around Samaria to get to Galilee just to avoid having to go there. They hated one another. So much so that they didn't want anything to do with each other, including worship. And so when these people would come to Jerusalem for sacrifices, they said, no, you're not allowed to be here. And so what they did is at a place called Mount Gerizim, which is in Samaria, there's a mountain up there. The Samaritans built their own temple. So we got two temples. We have two people groups. They don't like each other. And Jesus 
a Jewish man, is in Judea. He's going to go to Galilee, and it says he had to go through Samaria. Now, it's not because there's only one road. It's because there's purpose in his heart that, that cannot take place unless he goes to this place. And so, and so what we find here is this, right? Jesus, he's tired, he's hot, it's noon, he's thirsty. He sits down, he doesn't have a bucket. So he sits by the well, and all of a sudden, a Samaritan woman walks up. And all of a sudden, he says, hey, would you please give me a drink? Now, you have to understand what's happening here. Jesus doesn't have a bucket, and we're told that she only had one. He's not asking for permission to drink from this well. He's asking for her to draw water and for him to drink out of her bucket where her lips have been. Now, the only way for you and I to really feel the weight and the intensity and the significance of what Jesus is doing here is to actually go back to one of the most sad, ridiculous, dark shadows of our own country. And that is that when we as a country had two different fountains and we had a sign over each fountain, one of them said white and one of them said colored. And one fountain was for the majority And one fountain was for the minority. And viewing in the depths of our depravity a difference among people who are all created in the image of God. We said, you can't drink at our fountain. Well, Sychar had only one fountain. It was in Samaria. So if it had a sign, it would only had one sign. And that sign would have said colored or Samaritan or minority. And Jesus goes into this fountain and asks to drink at her bucket. And she understands what's going on because she's the one who say, wait a minute. How can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? And to make sure we get it, John, the author, inserts in parentheses. All right, let me break this down for you. Jews and Samaritans, they don't do anything together. They don't associate. They don't like each other. They have no dealings. What the woman here is asking Jesus is, you can't ask me to drink from my bucket. You have fountains and we have fountains. And you have to understand that this was not a mistake. Jesus is not a clumsy tourist. He's not sitting at the edge of the well with a flowered shirt and a fanny pack, looking at a map, thinking, hey, I wonder how to get out of here. Jesus knew where he was at. He knew why he was there, and he knew what he was asking her. He knew all this. And the reason we know that is because John 1, 9 says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And this true light was looking at the darkest, the darkest shadows on this earth that came because of hatred and and, and just sin within the heart. And he says, that's where I'm going. And the reason I need to go there is because there's people there that need to worship me. If I don't go, no one else is going to go. So he says to her, look, if you know who's asking you for a drink, you would actually be asking him for a drink. Because his drink is able to literally satisfy you. It's living water. Living water. Well, she's stuck in the physical. She's having a hard time with the spiritual, just like everyone else in the book of John. She's like Nicodemus that we looked at in John chapter 3, when Jesus said, you must be born again to go to heaven. And 
Nicodemus, all he can think is physical. And he says, well, where in the world am I going to find a woman with a womb big enough for me to crawl into? And the woman looks and says, living water. You don't have a bucket. You don't have a bucket. How are you supposed to give me water? You don't have a bucket. (laughs) But she also senses just a little bit of an air of superiority that when he says, if you knew who was asking you, you'd be asking me because I can give you living water. And so she says, what, are you greater than Jacob? I mean, Jacob gave us this well. In fact, Jacob drank from it himself. His descendants drank from it. Now imagine being the son of God and hearing this question, am I greater than Jacob? In his mind, he's probably thinking, well, I made Jacob, right? I uh, actually just left heaven. The last time I saw him, he was on his knees worshiping me. And so, so yeah, I'm greater than Jacob. And he says, listen, you drink from this well and it'll satisfy your thirst for an hour or two. But if you drink from the water that comes from my well, It will not only satisfy you, but it will literally recreate your heart so that your heart becomes a spring of living water that wells up to eternal life. So, yeah, I'm superior to Jacob. Now, to make sure we understand exactly what he's talking about there in John chapter seven, which we'll get to in some time. Verse 37 and 38 says this. Jesus says, anyone who thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. And so Jesus is saying, look, lady, if you'll believe on me, my Holy Spirit will come live in your heart. And where this water will satisfy you for an hour or two, my spirit will literally provide for you the contentment and the peace and the joy that you're looking for, not only for an hour, but forever. Forever. And she says, maybe with some sarcasm, well, why don't you give me a cup of that? So that I don't have to come to this well and draw water anymore. Now, the application for this first point is, I think, really important. And it's this, is let's as a people rejoice that Jesus ran into our mess to meet our need. You see, this idea of dark shadows and in particular racism within our country, the fact is, is we don't have fountains anymore, but it's still there in every way. And you may be one of those people that built those fountains 60, 70 years ago. Or you may be one of those or maybe a parent or a grandparent who is forced to drink from the other fountain. But what you need to know in this text is that God means for you to feel pursued wherever you are on that sliding scale of fault, wherever you are in that that sliding scale of darkness and your contribution to it. God wants you to know you are pursued. You see, Jesus came from heaven to earth and he just didn't stay with, the, with his own. He went into the pockets that were created on the backs of our sin. And he says, I'm going there to make worshipers. I'm going there to bring people to myself. You see, you need to understand this is that there is not a man or woman or law. There is not a body of people that can take away the fear that rises within our heart 
because there's a hatred and because there's an insecurity for people that don't look like us. That is an unfixable problem for humanity. Laws will not fix that. Oh, we don't have fountains anymore. We can share the same fountain, but still you look all over our culture and you see ripples of racism everywhere. And you need to know this is that one day that is going to be fixed. At the end of the book, we're told that every single person at the throne, it says different tribes, all tribes, all peoples, all races, all languages. They're all gathering right there before Jesus, because Jesus alone is the only person that has the power to take diversity and bring it together so that there's unity. And you need to know that 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 here in this place, right, we believe that every single person is an image of God. And so not only should we be looking forward to the day when racism is totally wiped away, but we who gather together with the spirit of God getting ready for heaven should be ready now to worship together. That the church itself should be the only place in the earth, literally, that everybody comes together and we say, you know what? We have one fountain here and the fountain is not the one I'm talking about on the wall is that. You come here, no matter what you look like, whether you look different from me or the same from me, we drink from one fountain and that fountain is Jesus Christ. So if you look like me or if you don't look like me, if you look like me or not, you need to know that you are welcome. You are, we are glad that you're here. And I pray to God that there's more racial diversity that happens in this very room in the years to come. Because it's a testimony to the greatness of Jesus that only he has the power to do that. Right. And so and so here here's here's Jesus and he comes and he's busting through all of our cultural walls that's built on the backs of our sinful hatred to show himself and to give us grace. The second thing I want you to see is that Jesus shines his light on our deepest idols to lead us to worship him. Jesus shines his light on our deepest idols to lead us to worship him. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, this is one of those mic dropping moments. You're right in saying I have no husband for you've had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. And she, she, she says, well, it's pretty obvious you're a prophet, right? That's what she says. I perceive that you are a prophet. So hear this. Jesus shines his light on our deepest idols in order to lead us to worship. You see, the very fastest way to get to the heart is through a wound. So they're contending over water and all of a sudden Jesus says, let's go a step deeper. Go, why don't you go call your husband? Oh, junk. Well, I, 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 don't, I don't really have one. And all of a sudden, he just says, you know, you're right. You've had five, and the man you now sleep with is not your husband. She's shocked. I'm shocked. You're probably shocked. And Jesus is sitting on the edge of the well, like, uh, like with razors in his eyes, just, just get ready to talk about worship. He's not shocked at all. <laughs> Hebrews 4.13 tells us something about Jesus Christ. It says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He sees everything. Some of you think you're great hiders. 
because you've not gotten caught yet for whatever the sin is in your life. You think, you know, I got away with that one. You and I hide about as well as this child playing hide and go seek. Okay, look at this picture. Really need a picture. (laughs) Is it up there? There you go, right? I mean, great kid. He's working hard. He's like, dude, I got him fooled. I've got him fooled. And of course, all of us look at that and we say, well, isn't that cute? Jesus Christ sees every thought in your mind. There's nothing you can hide from him. So you got to ask, well, why in the world would Jesus bring up a woman's adultery in front of her in order to get to a discussion on worship? And I believe the reason is because our sin patterns tell us a story about our idols. The things that we hope are going to satisfy us. You see, you and I, we were created by God. And just like palm trees bend towards the sun, the heart of every person was created to bend towards worship. So when you and I were in the garden, of course, we weren't in the garden, but when mankind was in the garden, there was no sin. We saw God. There was no blinders on. We looked at him. We knew we weren't God. And so everything within us recognized just a natural impulse and instinct to lean towards him. We, we knew it wasn't about us. It's all about him. We, mankind saw his, his creative ability, his wisdom, his power, and his affection, his love, and everything else. And they weren't in there going, you know, that, that, that rock right there is probably the reason for all of this. No, no, no. They were all looking, and they were all leaning towards him. And then all of a sudden, they sinned by rebelling against God. And we're told that sin puts a spiritual blindfold over our eyes to where we're unable to see God. It's what John's all about. The son of God walks right before and it says, and everyone's saying, can I get your ID? Who are you? But what's interesting is even though we're blindfolded and we can't see God, the impulse to worship is still fully functional. So so we still lean towards things. And as a result of that, our bent to worship means that every single one of us spend every single one of our day playing pin our hopes on the donkey. We got a blindfold. We're told, put this tail on the donkey. And that tail is our hopes. It's what we think is going to make us content. It's what we think is going to make us at peace. It's what, if, if I can just nail it one time, I'm going to be joyful. But we can't see anything. You see, five husbands for a woman and a regular sleepover is a mirror to a woman's heart and a man's heart. Either she can't find in a man what she craves in her soul, so she moves from one man to the next, or they can't find in her what they're craving. See, I want you to know that anything that we make and rise to become the ultimate in our life that's apart from Jesus Christ will either elude our reach or will crush our hope. Let me explain both. Anything that you seek to attach as the object of your hope and trust on this earth, apart from Jesus Christ, you may get there or not. If you don't get there, you live your entire life kind of disappointed because every time you take a step towards that, it seems to take a step away from you. It's like a carrot before a horse. 
I could just get closer, if I could just get closer, if I could just have that car, if I could have that job, if I could have that money, if I could have that, that, that. And sometimes, you know what? It just eludes us. We never grab it. That's a sign of a disappointed life. But there's another way that you can be really disappointed. And that is, is that if you stake your hope on something that's not Jesus Christ and you get it, you find out that it has an inability to be able to satisfy your heart too. And so it crushes your hope. So the application for us, Providence, is this, is let's lay aside our disappointing idols and let's worship Jesus. You see, our bent to worship is only satisfying when we set our hearts on a treasure that's worth our soul. And that's Jesus alone. If we pin our hopes of soul rest, either to a spouse or to a friend or to a small group or to a church or to a job or to money or to a basketball team, then peace will either elude our reach when they lose or it'll buckle under the pressure of our expectation if we get it. This is true in marriage and everything else. If your heart is not at rest in God, a spouse cannot help that. Oh, it might for an hour or two, just like Jacob's well. Had UNC won that game, you would have been happy for a night. But you know what? It would have taken a matter of a couple days before you're hungry again. Because that's not why you're alive. And so I beg you for your own joy. Look to him as the only source of peace and contentment for your soul. The third thing I want to show you is that Jesus shines his light on our confused ideas to lead us to worship him. Look at verse 19 again. She says, well, I see that you are a prophet. Verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, but we worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I'm right here. And so what we find here is that Jesus also shines his light on our confused ideas to lead us to worship. Now notice the human reflex to being convicted and wanting to avoid that. He says, this is your history. She says, I believe you're a prophet. (laughs) And then it's basically, she goes, well, look, since we're talking about my five husbands and my adultery, what's your stance on where people should worship? Should we be worshiping in Gerizim or Jerusalem? And he responds in one of the most amazing statements for a Jewish man. He says, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. In other words, a day is coming when both of these mountains will be irrelevant for worship. And the reason is because worship is not about a building. It's not about a mountain or a city or a temple or a room. You need to know something. We consider this room holy only for one reason. And that is it's large enough to get people who love Jesus in here together. It is no more holy than your bedroom or a hotel room. It's a room. We gather here 
You see, worship is not about standing in the right place. Worship is about standing before the right person. It's standing before Jesus. John chapter 2, verse 19, right? First time Jesus starts his ministry, he goes into Jerusalem, he goes to the temple, and all of a sudden he starts turning tables over and he's messing stuff up. And they say, hey, what gives you the authority to do these sorts of things? Why don't you show us a sign to prove that you have this much authority to start doing this? And you know what he said? He said, all right, here's my sign. Destroy the whole temple and in three days, I'll build it back up. And what's he saying there? He's saying, you can knock this whole thing down and worship is going to happen. And the reason is because I'm going to die and it's going to take me three days to get back up. But when I do, I'm creating a new temple and it's me. You're going to worship me. This is just a room. And she needed to do that also. You see, look, he says, look, the hour is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. See, friends, look, it's the spirit of God that makes us alive in Christ. It's the word of God that makes us mature in Christ. And so our life response to Christ must engage both our heart and our head, the spirit and the mind, truth and spirit. You see, there's a lot of times that we, we say, well, let's see, do I want a church that's going to teach sound doctrine or do I want a church that's really alive? Sometimes we think of those as two ropes. But if you can think about what he's saying here, it's like this. Imagine you have a really long rope that extends through these tiles into the beams. It goes over the beam, comes back down. But all we can see is it looks like two ropes. All these, all these sound tiles are put back up. So we don't see the beam. We just say, all right, well, we've got a spirit rope. We've got a truth rope. And what he's saying here is this, is that if we hold the rope of truth and let go of the spirit, then we dry up in orthodoxy and yawn at good news. He says, that's not how you're going to grow up. He says, if on the other hand, you hold fast to the spirit and you let go of the truth, then all you're gathering is simply empty frenzy. And then you fold up at the first sign of difficulty because you have no roots. You got to grip both ropes to grow up. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. That's the truth. The word of Christ is giving direction to what we're doing. But then notice the spirit comes in as well. As you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms with gratitude in your hearts for God. When she looks at all this, she goes, you know what? I know the Messiah is coming one day. When he gets here, he'll, he'll be able to explain all this stuff to us. And Jesus says, I am speaking to you. I'm he. In other words, what he says is, I'm the I am that spoke to Moses. I'm the living water that you were made to drink. I'm the prophet who knows everything about you and still wants you. I'm the savior who came to die for you, to make you a worshiper. Your life and every part of it is to be lived in response to my life. So the application providence is let's worship Jesus with all of our heart and head. The idea that God is looking for worshipers should both excite us and challenge us. So let us be thrilled that he's seeking such a people and let's be determined to be among those whom he finds. The last thing is this, 
is that Jesus shines his light through our weakness to lead others to worship him. He shines his light through our weakness, through our life, through our shame. It says in verse 27, just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. At the same time, the disciples were having a conversation with Jesus. And it says that they were urging Jesus to eat. Rabbi, eat, verse 32. But he said to them, look, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has someone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, look, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Well, he's already told us his work is to create worshipers. Do you not say that there are yet four months and then the harvest? Look, I tell you, look up, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is waging, is now receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, the one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans came from that town and believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this indeed is the savior of the world. You see, what's happening here is this, is these His disciples get back and all of a sudden she goes and she starts telling her testimony to people, pointing people to Jesus. And you need to know that this is really a big deal because she had a history of shame. Sychar was a small town. If you have five husbands, everyone knows. And she's saying, you know what? This guy knows everything about me. But she's not hiding her shame because now she's found someone that can deal with shame. And there may be other people in the same town who have the same sin or a different sin. And they may be struggling with shame. And so she's not thinking about herself anymore. She's thinking about Jesus. And maybe this is the one that other people need to hear about. So she shares her testimony. And it says that people come to believe in Jesus. A few more days passed in this same town. All these people, they said, you know what? This is what we believe. that This is the savior of the world. While all this is happening, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples. They're like, Jesus, we know you're hungry. These are great sandwiches. You should have one. And he says, look, I have a different kind of food. And that is that when people begin to worship the Father through the Son, it brings me tremendous delight. You see, the question for us is simply this, is what's going to motivate us to go across the street or to go across the state or to go across the pond in order to tell other people about Jesus Christ? And the only motivation strong enough is when we remember that Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth in order to rescue us. He gave us a testimony. He died, he was buried, and he rose from the dead. And he came into the darkness of our cultural walls. He came into the darkness of our sinful idols and our confusions and our misconceptions about worship and our personal shame. And he did all this to give us grace. Here we find the father sending the son. And in John chapter 20, we're gonna find the son, Jesus Christ, sending us. And so the application, the fourth and final is this, is let's try to share our testimony with one person this week. Just start talking about what Jesus has done in your life. It can be a friend. It can be a Christian friend. You say, does that count? It's good practice, right? 
It doesn't matter. Just talk about what Jesus has done. Someone's going to hear that needs to hear that story. Okay, so let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your mercy, your kindness that we see within this passage. Thank you that it tells us that we've been pursued. And God, for every or for every shadow in this culture that we've contributed to in our own fallenness, Lord, we repent and ask that you would forgive us. Lord, even now as we have an offering, God, we pray that with the gifts that are given that you first gave to us, that the gospel through these gifts would be able to go into dark places to tell other people about Jesus. And God, if there's anybody that maybe want to get baptized and to put that card in that same plate, God, I pray that when we have these baptism services, Lord, that perhaps, uh, perhaps just that symbolic testimony, Lord, would, would take somebody who's right now in dark shadows, maybe in shame, and it would encourage them to look and to see Jesus. So God, as we prepare to sing and as we give, God, even in a moment of just, uh, of just thinking as we take the offering of what you've made available to us, fill our hearts with joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.